Hi, I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast, the podcast series where we interview key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists, shaping the real estate industry and as a result, our world. On today's podcast, we'll be interviewing Megan Whip. Megan is the founder of the law offices of Megan L. Whip that specialize in family law and estate planning. She is also an avid real estate investor. On the podcast, we discuss the importance of estate planning, the advantages of trusts, efficient tax planning, and how changing demographics and an existential crisis are reshaping the future of the real estate industry. It's well worth a listen. On the podcast, we discuss the importance of estate planning, the advantages of trusts, efficient tax planning, and how changing demographics and an existential crisis are reshaping the future of the real estate industry. It's well worth a listen. Megan, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So for our audience, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an estate planning lawyer in Los Angeles. I graduated law school in 2017. I was working in big law, um, doing complex litigation, and I knew pretty early on I wanted out. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's not atypical. Yeah, yeah. No, I am not alone in that. Um, <laughs> so that, that had been a plan to get out for a long time. And I got into real estate in 2019 is when I really kind of got interested in the topic. And then I started purchasing when COVID happened in 2020. And I just got addicted to it, um, as a lot of people do. Um, and then I finally had the nerve to leave big law uh, the beginning of last year, and I started my own law firm doing estate planning. So estate planning is very different than big law, but it's probably one of the least, um, you know, it's one of the least prominently positioned laws for how important it is societally. Um, in terms of um, estate planning, uh, can you tell us a little bit about why estate planning really matters? Because I think uh, for your average person, they see, oh, it's a will or maybe trust. But I don't think they fundamentally understand how essential it is uh, to how we plan for the future. Absolutely. And when I say estate planning, people's eyes just glaze over. Um, (laughs) Because to your point, we usually put estate planning in the, the conversation of death. And a lot of people don't want to talk about that. Understandably so. Um, I try to position the conversation about estate planning in a financial planning context. And when you shift your perspective and you're looking at it more from a financial planning perspective, you're really setting yourself up for the future. It is a fundamental cornerstone of any functioning financial plan. And if you have a financial plan without an estate plan, to ensure that those assets are protected, it's a little bit like buying property without homeowner insurance. There's a risk out there and it's not a risk really worth taking. You don't think something's going to happen, but we all know that it can. Um, and so ensuring that you have that plan in place to make sure that your assets are going to be protected in the event that you become incapacitated, which could happen, uh, whether that's a short period of time or a long or you know end of life incapacity, and also making sure that those assets are passing securely and to the right people without court intervention is a complete game changer when you're talking about growing generational wealth. And so for folks who are entrepreneurs and real estate investors, this is 
an absolutely essential element of setting up that that long-term goal plan that you have, whatever your 10-year plan is, this has to be a piece of it um, or else you, are, you, you have a lot of exposure. So I always joke I'm a reformed lawyer uh, as somebody who's a, who's a, J, who's a JD uh, who never really pursued law to the same extent. Um, I'd, like you to, I'd like to go back and touch on, you talked about how the courts operate in the absence of a will or a trust. Uh, I think that's something that people fundamentally don't understand who, mm-hmm. you know, haven't taken wills, trusts, and estates or, or gone through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. And I will say that I think I did take wills, trusts, and estates. And <laughs> it, it was definitely on the bar when I took the bar. And I still <laughs> had no idea. Clueless. <laughs> but ask anyone who has had a personal experience with the probate court system in California. And they will tell you uh, horror stories that will rival anything I could tell you. My personal experience um, has been, it is a long, protracted, public, expensive process. And those are really the three key things that that people are trying to avoid when it comes to probate. Probate is the court proceeding that um, adjudicates all of your assets, determines how they're distributed, who is responsible for distributing them and the time frame to do so um, in the absence, anytime you go through the probate process. And the three things most people are trying to avoid is the time. It takes a year to many, many more years. Um, the cost. There are, oh yeah. Man- oh, yeah. <laughs> there are mandatory statutory uh, fees associated with probate. And one thing that I always like to point out to folks, especially when I'm talking to real estate investors, is your probate fees, the the fees, your state's probate fees are based on the fair value market of your assets. (laughs) Which is so difficult to find. Yes. And it's high. So it's not based on your equity. So if you had a million dollar asset and you had an $800,000 loan on it, you only have $200,000 in equity, but the probate fees are calculated off the million dollars. And so anybody who owns real estate is going to be looking at some hefty uh, fees there. Yeah. That's, so look, when we're, when we're sitting there and we're saying, okay, how do we avoid this? How do we avoid getting into probate? How do we get, avoid having all those costly fees? What are a couple key considerations that you think any real estate investor should sit there and, and plan for? Absolutely. So to avoid to stay out of probate, one thing that a lot of people don't know is that a will does not keep you out of probate court. So the first thing to know is that a lot of people think that if I have a will, I'm good. The will says this is what I want to happen. There are two problems with a will. The first problem is that it has no legal effect whatsoever until you are deceased. You could be a vegetable for the rest of your existence for years, and a will won't do anything for your family. It has no power until you are legally dead. The other problem is that what a will essentially does is it tells the court, this is what I want to happen. This is who I want to represent me. And this is what I want to happen to my assets. You still have to go get the court order. The court still has to sign off on it and say, yes, this personal representative is authorized to make these distributions. So anyone who has assets that are over 180000 um, in value, and anyone who owns any real estate, 
is going to be subject to probate with or without a will. The key to staying out of probate is holding title to those assets in a revocable living trust. So can you talk a little bit about what a revocable living trust is? Because I know that, you know, anybody who has any economic knowledge of, of, of how, you know, trusts and estates work, they've heard the term trust. So they kind of have this idea of, you know, trust fund kids and yeah. things like that. Well, can you tell us a little bit about what a trust is and, and a living trust and, and how it operates? Yeah. And that's funny because that's what a lot of people think. They think they hear trust <laughs> and they just think trust fund babies. It's for really, really, really rich people. And it it's really not. And that's the other thing I didn't know either. I had the same misconception, which is that, oh, that's for the, like, the uber wealthy. But they got uber wealthy by holding their assets and trusts <laughs> and building that generational wealth. Um, that's how they got there. So a trust is this really unique legal animal because it's not an entity. It's not an LLC or a corporation. It's a little bit more like a contract, but it has its own set of rules that apply to it. Contract law does not apply. You apply trust law and it can actually hold title, something a contract could never do. So you will literally take title to a property as the trustee of a trust. And when that pro when that property is held in the trust, the trust determines what's going to happen to it. And all of that property can pass outside of probate. It passes automatically by operation of law. Similarly, with you would hold bank accounts, any titleable asset, you hold it into the trust. So I think of a trust as a little bit like a bucket um, that's holding all of your assets. And it comes with a, a manual of what you want to happen. Um, and, and anything that can get dumped into that bucket and contained in the bucket can be passed outside of probate. So you mentioned a couple different types of trusts. Um, and I'm curious, when you're choosing and selecting a trust, how do you go about that process? So we usually start by looking at your assets um, and determining what your, if you have a federal tax problem, primarily, and if you have a, if you have a federal tax exposure, rather, maybe not a problem, um, uh, sometimes it could be a problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Most, most people think of it like a problem. Um, so if you have a tax exposure, there's a diff there's different things you may want to do. But we're so we kind of start with your assets and then separately look at your goals. What are you trying to achieve here? For most folks whose assets are under 12 million, which is the federal inheritance tax limit per person, a revocable living trust is sufficient, will serve the purpose of keeping you out of probate. Um, and and I want to be clear because these terms can get confused. They will say revocable trust, revocable living trust, living trust. It's all referring to the same thing. Um, inside of that trust, there is a lot of different terms that are going to be dependent on whether you're married, whether you have children, um, and how you are deciding, how you're choosing to pass your assets. Those will vary all within a revocable living trust. The other kinds of trusts are much more advanced, and those are where you are trying to address a tax exposure issue. And that's what, when you get into that world, you're really in advanced estate planning, and you are basically trying to separate, pull assets out of your estate to lower that dollar amount. So 
one of the other words, I, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about trust, but one of the other words that people talk about uh, are trustees. And now, uh, what is a trustee? Because I'm, I'm familiar, but I think there are some people in our audience that might not fully understand the trustee concept. Yeah, a trustee, big picture, generally, is the, a fiduciary. Um, and a fiduciary is is essentially someone who has duties and responsibilities to take and, and ethical obligations to take care of something, of your assets. When we're talking about it in the context of an estate plan, when you set up your trust, you are wearing three hats. You're wearing the hat of the grantor, which is the person who funded the trust, created the trust. You are wearing the hat of the person who benefits from the trust, the beneficiary, and you are wearing the hat of the trustee, the person responsible for managing the assets. The trust will include a provision for what is called the successor trustee. And that's probably more what you're, what folks are thinking about when they think about the trustee. They don't think about themselves in the role of trustee, but you really are. When you become, in, if you become incapacitated and when you die, then that is when the successor trustee steps into that role. And you can, there are professional trustees who can be appointed and that's their job. Um, folks with, with really large estates may consider having that kind of professional, like a CPA or an attorney, step into that role. For most people, it is a person who they trust. Um, <laughs> yes. You would hope, right? Yeah. The person who you trust and who you believe would execute your wishes as you intended them to be executed. So for a lot of folks, it's their spouse, um, a, a sibling, a close friend. Usually that's who people pick to be their successor trustee. Um, but really that's the person who's going to step in when you die and go, okay, this is what you wanted to happen. I'm going to, I'm going to get your taxes filed. I'm going to, you know, pull all the, marshal all the assets, distribute the assets, how you requested. That's that person's role as a successor trustee after someone has passed away. So when we go about uh, talking about trustees, uh, one of the things that I hear that comes up in our business, because we work with a lot of folks that have family wealth and family assets, and um, the big the big question is, who do you choose as a trustee? Um, and I'm curious if you have any advice as somebody who does this a lot um, uh, about selecting a trustee. I the advice that I that I give my clients is to make the decision based on the immediate circumstances. So I have a lot of clients who go, well, I want this person, but are they going to be the right person in 10 years? Yeah. Well, let's get to 10 years. Today, we're going to pick who it would be if, if God forbid, the unlikely situation that you needed this tomorrow. Because the cool thing about the revocable trust is that you can change it and you should change it. For most folks, like most of my clients are in their 30s and 40s even. They're younger people who are acquiring and building wealth. And they are most likely not going to need this trust for hopefully decades and decades and decades. So the trust is not designed to be made today. And then that document is going to be the document that applies when you're 90. You are going to make changes to it throughout your lifetime. Um, and it is designed to be changed. So I tell, I, I tell my clients, let's pick someone who you would feel comfortable with today um, and we'll change it later if we need to. The other 
thing that I like to point out is, especially with people for people with children, it it is a it is an option and can be advisable to pick a person to manage the money side who is not the same person who is going to have physical guardianship of the kids. Yeah. And so being aware of what that person's role is can help people sift through family members and friends and decide who was going to fit what role. And finally, having a conversation with the person who you think might be the trustee is a really good starting point. What, how do they feel about it? Are they willing to take that role? Um, and that may, their responses may change the client's ultimate decision. Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal, um, phenomenal point. I know my wife and I have looked at uh, establishing uh, a revocable trust for our children, and we're in the process of doing it actually right now. Um, And um, there's a very big difference between sometimes who you want raising your kids and who you want managing the financial assets of your kids. So um, look for anyone out there doing that. We've seen that play out on a level uh, within real estate as well, where there are certainly people that you want raising your kids. And then there are certainly people you want managing your real estate. And they are often very different, very different people. Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, My wife is a much better uh, and will be a much better mother, I would say, than, than than I'll be, but I wouldn't want her to manage our children's real estate assets. Yeah. So um, in terms of going through and talking about real estate assets, um, what let's move this conversation into the real estate world. So yeah. we've dealt we dealt a lot with trusts and estates and trustees. How does this apply to real estate? So the the first main point of when you're doing estate planning is that keeping you out of probate, and on the other side, ensuring that you have um, documents in place if you become incapacitated, so someone can step into that role. So when we're talking about real estate, we are really, the better way to put it, I guess, is succession planning. And anytime you're building any kind of business, and real estate is a business, whether you're a passive investor (laughs) um, and you're just, you know, doing passive income with it or not, you're still building something. And anyone who's putting in that kind of sacrifice and building something with that much intentionality needs to have in part of that a succession plan. And to your point where your, you know, your wife may not be the right person to manage real estate. A lot of parents want to pass to their adult children and those adult children may not be the right person to manage the real estate. They could benefit, they could be the beneficiary, but you, you see this happen really frequently where business is handed down generationally and it just blows up because the kids didn't want it weren't didn't have the skill or knowledge largely weren't interested it just just goes sideways and so ensuring that what you're building today is going to serve its generational purpose is a key element of that plan um and identifying who is going to manage it and who is going to benefit and how do i structure this so that happens and nothing falls through the cracks and it doesn't get squandered or lost or go to the wrong people. Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal point. And I'm I'm just gonna tag onto that at the end is there's a lot of 
uh, assets that we've managed for folks over the years, sometimes who are incredibly competent business people, but they either don't have the real estate background or they're out of state. Yeah. Uh, or they're in a dip, they're in New York City and their real estate's in in Chicago and they don't drive by the buildings on a day to day basis. They don't have that background and they could have gone to Harvard Business School or Wharton, but they're not going to have the day to day real estate knowledge that's able to accomplish that. And in those cases, often that's where you see just transactions and fire sales because people mm-hmm. either don't have that capability, they don't have the willingness to do it. And then you've just lost generations of tax advantage and, and yep. gains. So for anybody who's out there and they're looking at it, your kids can be the most competent kids in the yeah. world. But unless they want to be invested into that asset and invested into spending time to that asset, maybe a trust is the right move. So um, yeah. going on that and and continuing on this, how is it that owners can ensure that their plan is tax efficient because I know I just mentioned tax. Tax is is it sometimes seen as a dirty word, but in the real estate <laughs> world, it's it's sometimes one of the most important worlds or words that's out there. Absolutely, everyone is focused on taxes. I know I am, um, and anyone who does, anyone who owns a business knows that you yeah. want to know what's going on with your taxes in December, not April. You don't want to be finding <laughs> out in April. Oops, I should have done this differently last year. Um, Same concept when you are talking about an estate plan, planning ahead, looking quite far down the road and going, what tax bill is coming so that I can prepare for it today? The one thing to note is that, like I said, with a, a revocable trust, that trust has your social security number. It does not have its own EIN and it doesn't alter your taxes or how you get taxed. So what a lot of my clients have is they own their property in an LLC for tax reasons, which is a good tax strategy. And then the ownership of the LLC is held in the name of the trust. So doing that creates, it keeps you out of probate. The LLC creates the limited liability, really good strategy. It doesn't alter your tax situation as an individual. When we're talking, so so that level of estate planning doesn't change taxes. When we, taxes become relevant is when we are talking about, and again, this is in California, there are states with um, inheritance tax that is much, that is low, in fact. And so if you're in a different state, you do want to find out what your inheritance tax is. But in California, amazingly enough, they don't tax inheritance. And so you're only looking at that federal tax. And when you're looking at the federal tax, if you are coming up on that 12 million, if you are, especially if you're younger and you're investing in real estate, you're going to hit that amount. It's it's not that hard. It's It sounds hard to, to a lot of folks. I mean, I would like to be at that. I'd love to have that problem. Um, but because your, your estate is based on fair market value, if you've been in the game for a while, if you're doing larger deals, you're going to be looking at that tax bill. And it's at 40%. Um, oh, yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, the the government gets their share, um, and then some. And and I will also say this about the tax, um, the federal tax. It's a bit of a political number. It it's always subject to change. The percentage could change. The exemption can change. Um, if you look at the history, it has gone up. The exemption has increased dramatically in the last twenty years. But there's nothing to say that it can't go down with a different administration. 
um, or other tax laws. So I always tell people when it comes to taxes, I don't know what your assets will be. I don't know what the federal tax will be. And I don't know when you're going to pass. Um, so with that in mind, when you are looking at that potential federal tax issue, that's when you want to start planning early to move assets out of the estate. And what a lot of people will do is they will set up a trust for their children and they will take advantage of the 17,000 gift uh, limit. So you start gifting to 17,000, each parent can gift to each child um, that amount per year. And you start basically pulling out of the estate. Or even if you are you have much more significant assets, starting the process of moving that, those assets out of your control before you pass away. Um, and when we're talking about advanced estate planning, we're largely talking about the distinction between being benefiting from something versus controlling something. That's when you get those trust fund babies. They don't control oh, yeah. the trust fund. They benefit from the trust fund. And so that's how you pull out your assets, move it into irrevocable trust, and then you have you have no control. And once you have no control, it's not your asset any longer. And that can lower your estate, which can reduce or avoid the estate tax. So that's it gets a lot more complicated when you're when you're doing that. That's really when you bring on a team, you know, you get your financial advisor, you get your tax person, you get your estate planner. It's a team effort when you when you get to that point. Um but for real estate folks, it's definitely something to start thinking about even when they're younger because you are likely going to have that problem. Yeah, look, always I think the best advice that I've been given in terms of estate planning and working with multi-generational uh, real estate wealth is you, you plan for the best case scenario uh, in terms of your wealth, and you also plan for the worst case scenario, in, including the tax regime, because yeah. things, things can happen. Administrations change. We live in America. So, you know, it doesn't matter who, if it's Team Red or Team Blue or right. who, who, whoever is in Congress or, or just if social norms change, you want to be mm -hmm. ready for it and prepared for it. Because the worst case scenario is you're sitting there and doing planning in old age at the end of your life. Yeah. And you're just in an absolute panic. So yeah. um, in, in terms of planning for old age, one of the things that we were seeing in, in the country is an aging demographic across the board. And look, uh, we've had other folks on the podcast before talking about the silver tsunami. Yeah. Uh, I don't care what, 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 you know, term you use for it. We're getting older as a country. Yeah. Um, and so when we're starting to plan for that, how can we look at that as estate planners and try to understand and maximize, uh, in an aging world? I mean, I think that the primary focus needs to be ensuring that people have an estate plan and, you know, a, a lot of people think of estate planning in the context of it's for older people. Um, Younger people die as well, though. Uh, sadly, 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 yeah. sadly, they do. Um, and so it is not an older generational thing. It is not, oh, I do this after I'm 60. I do this after I'm 50. And yet, even though we have this estate planning in the context of older people is a little more societally accepted. That's what people think about. 
there are a lot of people, older folks, who have no plan in place or an insufficient oh, yeah. plan in place. Um, and so as we are looking at the this large increase and as we're starting to watch baby boomers pass away, you are going to see increases in, like probate problems and jams up in the probate courts because if people don't have those plans, that's where they're all going. Um, and so I think there's, it's a conversation that people need to have with their parents and the older people in their lives to make sure that they have one as well and not just assume that they do. Um, because ultimately when someone passes away, the people who are impacted are the people who are left. Um, and so I think it's really important to talk to your parents, talk to your grandparents and have that open dialogue about what, what they're doing and what their plans are, because we are going to see this large transfer of wealth and there's no reason for it not to, for there's no reason for it to have to go through the probate courts to do that. Um, there's, there's an option to avoid it. Um, and if you're the one left, you are going to really prefer that you had that conversation <laughs> and you know what's going on and that they, you gave them the information that they needed to avoid that outcome. Look, um, I think for a lot of folks, there's a deep uh, religious and philosophical and psychological uh, hang up that we have with our own existence. And there's so many families and so many generational, um, you know, large real estate um, holdings that we've dealt with over the years where mm -hmm. an individual might have a couple hang ups with relating to their own death. And it, it, and it just creates so much trauma at the end of their lives. Yeah. Uh, when you try to navigate that, I can't say enough about how important and how critical and the absolute blessing it is for folks that don't have uh, that last minute push to try to wrap everything up into a trust or a will or a state. And then, and then the, the big issue becomes, does it even hold up right. at, at the end of their life? Because they sat there and they drafted it on their deathbed while they're pumped full of uh, morphine. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's just not the situation you want to be in. So um, that's one of the biggest reasons why we had you on the podcast is I think it's an absolutely critical conversation that we should all be having, particularly as people who, you know, work with high net worth individuals and high net worth, um, high net worth um, portfolios, because, gosh, you just do not want that at the end of your life. So I know we're getting to the end of the podcast, but it's not over. Uh, we have the final four. All right. And the final four is some of my favorite parts of the podcast, typically. So my favorite, or one of my favorite questions, I'll at least say, is uh, where do you see trusts and estates and planning going in terms of the real estate world? I I don't know where I see it going other than when we talked about that silver tsunami in the, there's going to be a large transfer of wealth. And if people are not educated and they're not having these conversations, we are going to see a, a increase in probate sales of real estate um, and a, just a cluster in the courts. Um, but where I would like to see it going is that, right. <laughs> can I do that instead? Um, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Uh, where I would like to see it going is that we shift the conversation 
away from death planning because there are so many hangups and because it is not accurate to say that estate planning is death planning. There's two different things. There is such a thing as death planning. A a trust is not that. Um, and, And so shifting that conversation and making it about succession planning, uh, multi-generational wealth building, and just general financial responsibility, a piece of the conversation of financial literacy, and encouraging people to get into these plans, like you said, much younger, and so that they are not scrambling to make, you know, deathbed estate planning. Um, Look, yeah, I think, look, I 100% agree. I think we should get away from the existential crisis talk that so many people have um, and try to get more to a talk towards generational planning. And I'm curious, where do you see that future going in terms of generational planning? Do you think Do you think we can have a discussion and get people starting a little bit earlier? Or do you think that, you know, it's still going to be a, a long, uh, you know, a long challenge going forward to try to get get people planning ahead? I am an eternal optimist and I think we I think we can. I mean there was a time when no one wore seatbelts and now you, <laughs> you would never get in a car. You won't I won't drive, you know, around the corner to the gas station. I feel like oh, I feel really wrong. Something's wrong here because we changed in the course of a couple generations uh, how risk was perceived in that regard. So I think it is completely possible to change the conversation around something and change an entire uh, generation's perspective. Um, And and not the the need is there, but to present the solution and normalize that solution, I think is is very possible. And so I'm going to follow up one last time. Do do you think we're starting to see that change? Because look, I... I live in such a weird bubble where most of my family are either lawyers, insurers in real estate or economists, like from a a bunch, which are kind of the most boring people in the world and see the world in a very matter of fact ways. And I, and I'm saying this as, as two of them, right. Yeah. Um, uh, in, in terms of that, are you seeing that kind of in your practice or do you think we're still, you know, fighting the good fight in terms of planning ahead? I am seeing that. And I, like I said, a lot of my clients are younger. A lot of my clients are thirties. Um, and I think that it is in large part due to the access to information on the internet, social media. Um, and there's a, there's definitely, I don't know if it's a trend, but there's certainly a, a great deal of interest in financial literacy and um, making wise financial decisions. I think if we are able to add this to that conversation, it's it's hand in glove. It it fits, it makes sense, and I think there's a lot of interest um in the younger generations on that topic of being financially responsible and financially literate and planning for the future. So the the seeds are there. The seeds have been planted. People are interested. It's just adding this piece to that conversation that's already going on. So to keep this conversation going on, one of my other favorite questions is if we could go back in time to young Megan and say, Megan, if you could give yourself one little tidbit of advice, what would it be? Oh my, that would, I would have to say, 
start sooner and and dream a lot bigger. I think I uh, played it really small for uh, for a really long time. And I just, every little achievement I was shocked at, you know, I was like, oh, wow. Uh, every, at every, at every stage of my very slow career, you know, development, every time I thought, this seems impossible. And I wish if, if I could go back, I would, I would tell myself, plan ahead, plan a lot bigger and start taking action today with that endpoint in mind. Um, I don't know if that younger Megan would have taken that advice, <laughs> but that's, that's the advice I would have given her. <laughs> so like one of the best ways we can get advice is going and, and reading books. So do you have a book in particular that's influenced your career? And it could be a business book or a real estate book or just a book on life. Yeah. My um, go-to is Grant Cardone's Be Obsessed or Be Average. Okay. All right. And, yeah. I listened to that on audio in 2019 and it just, it, it was a big mental shift. Um, and it's what really started me in, started me down the real estate investing path and got me interested. And so that book is a, it's a, it's a great listen, great read. I go back to it all the time. So look, wonderful read. But there's something that's even more important, and that's, I think, meeting new people and, and getting a, a, a better understanding of the real estate world through their eyes. And the whole reason we started this podcast in the first place is to get people who are influential in the real estate world and, and spread their message and a little bit about them to a broader audience. So on that note, the most important question in the whole podcast, who's the next person we should be bringing on? There are so many awesome women investors in the real estate world that I, I really 100%. enjoyed following. Um, I love what they're doing. One woman who always comes to mind for me though, is Heather Blankenship. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She does the RV um, and mobile parks investing and she's got really, yeah. really great advice on um, how she got into that business and also how she manages and motivates employees um, because you have to learn how to scale. You have to learn how to, be a leader, um, or you're you're stuck really small. And I that that aspect of um, kind of her guidance and tips, I've always found to be really really helpful. And I think she's awesome. Look, we have to have her on. I know uh, I've casually reached out a couple times, uh, and we have to make something happen because that would be awesome. Yeah. Uh, the the last question that we have is the, probably the second most important question, <laughs> and that's how does someone reach out and find you because You've got a lot of real estate advice, a lot of great legal advice and great estate planning advice. And there's so many people in our audience who have developed tremendous real estate portfolios, but just haven't planned for the future. What's the best way that they can come out and contact you? Yeah, they can um, go to my website at whiplaw.com. It's W-H-I-P-P, it's two P's, law.com. And you can you'll find all my contact information there. Uh, you can schedule a 15 minute consultation um, or call my office. Awesome. Megan, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. And we have to have you on in the future. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Thanks again to Megan. We appreciate her insights. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a five-star rating or review. Your comments, interactions, and subscriptions truly matter and help us continue to provide quality guests. 
You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lanfear with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.